Welcome to Ear Splits, the core sports podcast where we talk to amazing women, hear stories of courage, and explore the world of endurance sports. Are you ready? Let's go! Hey, everybody, and welcome to Ear Splits, the core sports podcast where we talk about everything in the world of endurance sports. We share stories of heart and courage. And we interview individuals that are doing their part to make this world a better place. My name is Kebby Holden. I am founder and designer of Core Sport. And I'm Reg Holden. My most wonderful husband and athlete. So Reg, who are we going to be speaking to today? So we've got an interview with Catherine Bertine. And Catherine is just an incredible human. I'm so excited to talk to her. She has been a professional triathlete, a professional cyclist, a filmmaker, an author, and she has a new book out that's called Stand, Just Stand, and it's all about becoming an activist, and it's been endorsed by the likes of Mel- Malcolm Gladwell, and so it's it's promised to be a very, very good read. Yep, she is amazing, and in addition to having the interview with Catherine, we've got our tip of the month from Coach Jess Smith with Hardcore Coaching. Yay, Coach Jess! Um, always valuable information from Coach Jess, and of course, we have... Quite possibly my favorite part, the joke of the month from Lecti. Yep, Lecti is awesome. So listen to the uh, entire podcast. She's at the end, and it's uh, hilarious as usual. But before we get into our discussion with Catherine, what's new at CORE? I'm glad you asked. Uh, We have some new products starting to trickle in in the new year. So we're super excited. We've got some new prints coming in, pretty much starting around the beginning of February, and The other thing we're super excited about the beginning of February also is the opening of our next collective beat team window for membership. Um, It's open for two weeks, the first through the 15th. And I'm just super excited about the collective beat. It's about 350 teammates strong. Now it is just an incredible community. We have so much fun. I, I mean, I am proud of it, but, but truly it's just incredibly fun. But the other great part is you get all these perks from core, just discounts, first dibs on sales, sponsor goods. So basically it's just, it's just a great deal. Yep. So you buy for the cost of the membership, you get, you get a free kit and you get the discounts and you get credits. And so basically it's just like buy a kit and get all this other stuff and the community. Right, exactly. And the kit is an elite team kit, so it's just for that team. But I also want to talk about what we've got going on at the Black Women in Sports Foundation. Yeah, we I know we made donations to them and thanks to the core community and customers and family. Uh, we were able to send over about $13,000 from core to them. And then there was more from our customers that made donations. But uh, we're working with them on a triathlon, right? Well, we're working on them to form a pilot program. It was uh, pretty honored that initially we're just going to give them the check and say, you guys do what you do so well. We're not going to reinvent that wheel. But they didn't know so much about triathlon as they did about some other sports. So um, we are now working together to form a pilot program for some of the scholarship recipients. And that will culminate in doing the Philly Tri in July. And it looks like we're going to be able to sponsor a two to three athletes, which would be great. And if this pilot program goes great, we're going to take it to other cities and and areas of the country. And that's the big goal. Very cool. So fingers crossed that we're all racing uh, by mid, yeah, mid 2021. Yes. 
All right. Well, that is fantastic. So, okay, well, let's get to the interview and welcome Catherine Bertine. Yay! Catherine, uh, your first thanks for joining us and your resume is amazing. Uh, I I think we could spend quite a bit of time just talking about your accomplishments, but uh, my understanding is that you've been a triathlete, a figure skater, a professional cyclist, filmmaker, author, activist, writer, probably, probably (laughs) more and more. Basically, what can't you do? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, No, thank you for such kind intro. I appreciate that. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, to to the extent you can, and we have time, kind of talk us through your athletic career and background. When, when did you first get into sports? Sure. Yeah. So I love that I can't even remember when I got into sports. So I think that, you know, from a young age, my parents just exposed me to all sorts of stuff, you know, um, anything from from softball to ice skating to skiing, you know, whatever, whatever was around, they kind of opened the gate and said, here, you know, see if you like this. And I'm, I'm very thankful for that experience. Um, but what stuck for me was skating. We, we grew up about five minutes away from a local rink in New York state, you know, just outside of New York city in the suburbs. So I fell in love with skating. Again, I don't even remember learning how to skate. So it must've been pretty young. And, um, by the time I got to middle school, I was just in, so in love with the sport and I started taking lessons, which put me on a competitive track. And at the same time, I also started running in middle school and high school and I fell in love with cross country. So those were my two specialties, you know, as a kid, I loved those sports. Then when I got to college, I traded in running for rowing. My father was a rower and, you know, he always said, you know, you're kind of suited for this sport. You're on the tall side and you've got strong legs from skating. So I think this would, would help. And so I absolutely fell in love with rowing. So in college, I was a rower and a skater. And after college, I toured professionally with the skating companies like Ice Capades and Holiday on Ice and Hollywood on Ice. And that was really quite an experience, enough to, to write a book about. Amazing. <laughs> um, it was quite a journey. It was something else. And, you know, that's when I also knew I wanted to go to grad school um, for writing and for journalism. So I got into the University of Arizona's creative writing program. And I moved out to Tucson back in 98. And I... You know, in in the desert, there is neither ice nor water. Right. <laughs> so, hmm. so skating took a backseat, but that competitive instinct in me was still there. You know, I needed an outlet for for physical activity. And uh, a friend of mine in the rowing world said, "Well, you should get a bike. Cycling and rowing use the same quadricep muscles, and mm-hmm. you might like it." And it turned out that University of Arizona had a club triathlon team. So as a grad student, that was something that was open to me to, to join and to try. So I got a bike and I got into triathlon. And lo and behold, that sport sunk <laughs> its hooks into me. Mm-hmm. As it does. <laughs> I <loved it. laughs> so, yeah, I picked up triathlon. And as I kind of climbed through the ranks, I thought, you know, I might have an opportunity to hear, here to seek training professional. And after about, I think it was five or six years 
in the amateur ranks, I was able to climb high enough to get my pro license. And I turned professional in triathlon for three years. That was an, you know, such a great journey. I should, I also love to tell people that this was before the Christy Wellington era. So, you know, I could, I was doing Ironman triathlons and I could finish with a 10 hour time. Mm-hmm. And back then you could still place in the top 20 with a 10 hour finish. Right. And of course, Christy Wellington changed that for all of us, you know, for in the best possible way, because she raised the bar so much higher. So in this day and age, I don't think I would have been able to qualify as a pro triathlete. But um, back then, you know, I loved it. And then, and then as a journalist, I got into, you know, to ESPN, and I was writing for ESPN. And I went on an assignment that introduced me to cycling, to road cycling. So I first got on a road bike at the age of 31. And I love it, it was just, oh, it was so crazy to think that getting into a sport via an assignment in journalism would be a thing. And it was. And I, um, the, of the three sports in cycling, or sorry, in triathlon, cycling was my strong point. So, uh, you know, I stuck with that and, and I climbed, started climbing through the ranks of cycling. Um, and when the ESPN assignment ended, my love of cycling had really just gotten started. So I wanted to follow that as far as I could go. And in 2012, uh, at the age of 37, I actually landed my first professional contract in road cycling, where I then continued in the sport professionally for the next five years. And hey, so Catherine, how, how did that how did that progression in cycling? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Was it amateur events and then you you climbed up the categories and then got noticed or did you send out race resumes to teams what, what was that like yeah both it was both so you know just like in any other sport you do have to put in those years of climbing through the ranks and quote unquote proving yourself and proving your talent and ability so that side of it um you know i was getting better during those five years and i love how in endurance sports age is an attribute for women. Mm -hmm. We tend to get stronger and faster in our 30s and occasionally in our 40s too. So that was, you know, I had that in my corner. What I didn't have in my corner though, however, in cycling was the fact that just because we physically got stronger, it didn't mean that it eliminated the, um, you know, the out of date stigma and notion that, that women are too old you know, to Mm -hmm. do this sport in their 30s and 40s. That was still very much alive and well in cycling, unfortunately. So I did have to send out resumes and, you know, really fight for this opportunity or this chance to even be considered by these pro teams. And to make it worse, the UCI, which is the cycling federation that all, you know, the professional levels fall under kind of like we have FIFA in soccer mm-hmm. we have UCI in cycling right and there was still back in this day in 2012 there was still a rule an age median that said professional teams could not average right. over the age of 28 what <laughs> that's it seems so outrageous yep. to me is is do you think that is because they teams were looking for, you know, longevity and, and you know, like a, a long-term contract with some of these female pro cyclists or. I think that's part of it. Um, and I also asked the UCI about that. I'm like, where did this come from? What is going yeah, on? Why isn't it results-based? Exactly. Exactly. And back around that time, and this was true in like 2006, seven and eight, 
they had created a kind of a world tour team or world tour and pro continental level for the men. And I guess the men at that point had a differential between the, um, the world tour and the pro continental tour. And for one of those, it said, I think it was the, the slightly uh, less or slightly lower ranked than the world tour. It said that the men could not average over the age of, of 28 at the continental level, but then at world tour level, that was eliminated. They could be any age that they wanted. Um, so almost like they were trying to pave the way, you know, in an age category or rising through the ranks, you know, it, it was back where it was strange. It was weird to have it for the men, but what they did was they simply moved that over and made the women adhere to that too. Well, just not to belabor the point, but that's kind of the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I mean, <laughs> it's, it, I mean, they don't tell Tom Brady in football, you're too old and you can't play. And Roger Federer. Uh, you know, Roger Federer in tennis. And what exactly? What was their rationale? As, as, yeah, what I did mean, they come back with? How asked? do they even I try to explain their, that? Their weird rationale was trying, as if they were trying to say that, okay, in the, the pro continental level, men have to be 28 or under. So, but by the time they get to the world tour level, they can be any age that they want, as if they were trying to maybe create like a U23 or a development type of strategy. Only it was ridiculous and it was wrong to have that strategy in there at all. It should be merit-based, not age-based. And I think when the UCI realized that, okay, maybe this age 28 thing isn't working for the men, they got rid of it. But they didn't fully eliminate it for the women because women only had world tour level. They didn't have Pocanti and world tour. They just slapped this age requirement on the professional women of all ranks. And so therefore it was wrong in general, but it was even more wrong that it just lingered and stuck around when women didn't even have two categories you know, that could have been delineated by age. So the, the worst part of the story is that it just stayed there. You know, they, yeah. whether or not the UCI realized it or not, they just let it sit there forever and ever, even if they realized that this didn't make any sense. It just didn't go away until the, the activism side that, that came next. So it wasn't you know, even that they were trying to be unfair. It was just that they basically, the, the women's tour was just a second thought. Yeah, exactly. It just so sort of women ignored it altogether. Yeah. But unfortunately, because of, you know, the, the trickle down theory, mm -hmm. because this rule was, was there in place at the top and because they didn't get rid of it, then the stigma stayed for that whole time that even when the rule was eventually eliminated in 2014, which is you know, still so many years later, is eliminated. But even when it was gone, the stigma didn't just evaporate with it. It had been around for so long. You know, it's not like the UCI came out and said, oh, hey, our bad, that rule thing was really dumb. And, you know, women are super strong in their 30s or 40s. It's not like they turned, you know, turned the tide and helped clean up their mistake. They just, I think, quietly hoped it would go mm -hmm. away. And what's also interesting is during this time, U.S. Olympian Kristen Armstrong, who won, who ended up winning three consecutive gold medals in the time trial throughout her 30s and early 40s. What's hilarious is she was proving that that rule was ridiculous. I totally <laughs> remember know? that. And just being like, you are, you are you, just um, voting yourself out of some of the best performers that could possibly be. It's just, it seems insane. It seems so short-sighted. It was. It was incredibly 
short-sighted. And you have to also look at the underlying factor that Correct. Um, cycling, unlike triathlon, which if we you know think about triathlon is a relatively new sport. Didn't it just hit its 40th anniversary? Is that right? I think um, Ironman. I think Ironman did yeah. recently. Yes, I think it's around that forty-year mark. And if you think about the longevity of sports, that's still a relatively new sport. Whereas cycling has been around for a couple hundred years, and the UCI itself has been around for one hundred and twenty-one years. So the problem that happens with that is, um, you know, we become these victims of tradition, where mm-hmm. sometimes a sport that 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 is so old doesn't embrace change very easily. (laughs) And that's why those types of rules and those types of of ideas and thoughts stuck around for so long. They didn't have what, you know, the the modernity that triathlon did to open its doors to men and women equally from the beginning. Right. And it's it's a somewhat of a machismo sport to begin with, right? So to have to you know, sort of cater to women and, and get all that ramped up. It was a real is a real challenge. And it's just shocking to have to do it this late in the game, but nonetheless, as important. So I'm so yeah. Yeah. glad that people like you, you know, stood up and, oh. and took a took the reins on that. Thank you. Well, you know, I actually I attribute triathlon to being part of the solution because of the sports that I mentioned that I played growing up, you know, running and skating and rowing and triathlon. All four of those shared one thing in common, and that was they all were, they all have equal access for women, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I thought you were going to say tight-fitting spandex clothing. Oh, that's true. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. Some might have had more sequins than others. But hey, correct. why not? <laughs> A little bling never <laughs> hurt. Not? Exactly. And, you know, growing up in those sports, it, you know, um, there was never any indication that I wouldn't have access to the ice or the water or the the playing field, so to speak. So to get over into cycling, you know, like I mentioned, I was 31 when I got into cycling and I'm looking around and there were three major hurdles. One, and this has to do with both amateur and professional levels of cycling, is that women didn't always have access to the same events that the men did, namely the Tour de France. And then for the for the events where we did have access, the women's races were all shorter. And that made no sense to me, especially coming from triathlon. <laughs> right, especially you know, coming that- from Ironman to have a have a distance limit, like we're delicate flowers. <laughs> exactly. It would almost be like imagine if Ironman had full Ironman for men only, but women can only do a half Ironman. It sounds absolutely ridiculous, and it is, but yet that still exists mm-hmm. in so many cycling races. They shorten the race for women solely based on the idea that they can't do it. And then the worst part of it all, you know, like the cherry on top, is the when you get to the professional ranks, the prize money was a fraction for the women what it was for the men. You know, mm. I can quote the Tour of Flanders had something like a $75,000 prize purse for the men and a $1,500 oh, prize oh, purse. Oh, that hurts just to hear. What? Doesn't it? Oh, and again, that's what glaring. And has never had that. You know, the, the men and the women, and I think in all other distances of triathlon, they all earn equal prize money. Hmm. So yep. that's, you know, I'm thankful because had I not had that experience in triathlon, 
maybe it would not have been so obvious to me when right. I stepped into the cycling and make me question like, what is going on? <laughs> wow. That is fascinating that, that, that almost happened cosmically that you, the progression of your sports. Can, I'm thankful for that part of the journey. Can I take it a step back from the, um, we'll get into more of the activism a little later. Um, and I can't yeah. wait for that part. <laughs> But I wanted to talk about going from triathlon to cycling in terms of training and just making that transition. You know, the the sort of the stereotypical concept is that triathletes have no biking handling, no bike handling skills. You know, we're really good at going in a straight line for a long period of time. But what was it like, especially, you know, you're not just out of school and you're you're in your 30s and you're like, Okay, I'm going to go bump some elbows with some other girls. How do I do that after, you know, not drafting for so long in, in triathlon? What, what was it like to get in that scrum almost? Great, great question. I definitely had a lot of things to work on because, and especially being comfortability in a peloton. Mm-hmm. Luckily, has a lot of group rides. You have a lot of access to amazing high-level group rides. So I had to learn to sink or swim, so to speak. And... <laughs> You know, not only in terms of the tactics, but also the ability. And I had a coach and I worked on all of that. I kept showing up to group rides and I kept trying to hang in as long as possible in terms of my strength and ability. And luckily there were people in the Peloton who understood like, look, we better teach her how to ride. Otherwise she's a danger to us. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, um, I, I, had great teachers and I also figured out, okay, this is where you have to learn to be comfortable, you know, bumping around elbow to elbow, shoulder, to shoulder. But one of the things I had to work on the most coming from triathlon was my cadence. Mm. You know, in cycling, you need to be able to hold a cadence in the eighties and nineties and the hundreds. Wow. You need to learn how to spin your gears effectively and efficiently. And unfortunately in triathlon, I think it's often taught that you have to hammer along in a cadence of in the 70s or even worse, the 60s. But especially, you know, I was used to a cadence in the 70s thinking that you have to put it in the biggest and the hardest gear yep. and hammer. And, and that's the only way to do this. And it's actually the op- opposite that's true. As a, master, it- as a master myself, yeah. that is fascinating. Yes, yes. You have to learn how to unmask. And not huh. to learn it mentally, but you have to adapt your body to it, you know, your mm-hmm. hip flexor. And you have to learn how to get the bike up to speed and be comfortable in a higher cadence and a, um, you know, an easier gear and a higher cadence doesn't mean that you're going to be riding less effectively or you're going to be slower. It actually means you're going to go faster if you can reach those higher gears. And had I known that in triathlon, you know, I might have been a lot more effective and proficient. So triathletes, take note, yes. learn to run at a higher cadence and you will actually be a stronger and faster athlete than this mentality of gnashing. I would love to dig into that another time thoroughly, just completely <laughs> selfishly. But but tell us a little bit about what your training was like when you became a professional cyclist and was on a was on a, a professional team. Was most of your training done? Did they have a head coach that gave you all your workouts? Did you have your own coach that, you know, gave you the training you were supposed to do? Did you train with your team members? Are you all in the same place? What was that like being on an, a pro yeah, team? That's a great question. So what, what's interesting about cycling is that a lot of, um, you might be teammates with people who are across the globe, let alone across the country. Huh. So 
you really do not train together except for a team camp. And then you have to race together. So what that means is you have to hone your skills for what your job is on that team, whether you're a climber or a sprinter or a domestique, which was pretty much my role of, you know, putting myself out there into the wind for the benefit mm-hmm. of our um, team leader who might be a climber or a sprinter, depending on that stage. So the reality is we don't really train with our teammates unless we're at team training camp, which might only happen a couple times a year. So teammates are living everywhere and you, you know, that's where the group rides come into play. You can simulate uh, pretending that the group ride is like a giant team, so to speak. (laughs) And then in terms of the training, everybody has their own individual coach that helps them be the strongest, best, fittest athlete they can be. And then again, also aligning with, with whatever mission that athlete has on that team. So um, it's, it's a very interesting team structure as opposed to when you look at something like basketball. Yep. You all train together. Right. You all play together. You right. all live nearby each other. Different right? relationships. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very different that way with cycling, but yet it works. Yep, for sure. <laughs> and, and, Catherine, Catherine, we've always, uh, or I've noticed that when Kevin and I would train together, she's a, and she's a much stronger cyclist than I am, but when she was kind enough not I've to just. I've never beaten him in tennis though. That's well, yeah. still on my <laughs> list. <laughs> but, but when she was kind enough not to just, you know, leave me Whatever. in the dust and, and we'd go on the, the longer rides, it seemed like, you know, an hour or two hours in the shields came down and, and the conversations got deeper and sometimes a little bit you know, sillier, but we'd, I'd love to know, you know when you're in the middle of the peloton and a long day of riding, you know, some, nobody's attacking, you know, what was, what was going on? What were you talking about? Did anything funny happen? <laughs> are you trash talking? Yeah. Are you, are you just heads down, you know, doing your own I thing? I love it. I love it. I think there's a level of trash talking that will happen in the, uh, <laughs> in the beginning of a race in the in the first half maybe first three quarters of the race (laughs) but by the end of the race everybody is usually so blown to bits there's no Mm. strength or ability for trash talking um (laughs) oh it's so funny you know especially for for all of us domestiques who spend the majority of that first and second and third half of the race thrashing about doing (laughs) our job you know so that you know by the end of the race our our leaders slide into the right position to do their thing and take the win. Um, for all of us who are domestiques, yeah, there there might be some trash talking or bravado happening. But what's funny is by the end of the race, we're all blown to bits. and We drift to the back of the peloton and we mostly have finish times that are way, way back, you know, because we've done our job. So the people that we were trash talking with, then we're all, we're all blown up together. And then we just, <laughs> uh, you know, we're just kind of like, hey, how's it going? You know, yeah. <laughs> and, and, how you doing? And you know, I think that there's a, a level of respect in this sport where we we know how incredibly brutal and hard cycling mm-hmm. is. That we might have that kind of healthy competitiveness or that healthy animosity. Well, when you're out there on the playing field, but at the same time, we also have this this love and respect of knowing that we're all in this together and we've all just gone through the hardest day or the hardest race and there's there's a level amongst us you know that we get to that we're just like oh my god we're all you know sisters in misery yeah, yeah shared <laughs> I love suffering. that I love that 
<laughs> so yeah, so sometimes I think everyone tries to conserve energy when they're racing. So it's not like you're going to have big full-on sing-alongs in the peloton of, you know, kumbaya. <laughs> but, you know, sure, people who are friends and competitors will have small side conversations if there's a moment to lull in the peloton. And, you know, when you're in this sport for the long haul, you end up being on different teams during different years and you know a lot of women and sometimes your closest friend might be on another team mm-hmm. and so you very much have to wear that hat of professionalism where it's, you're ripping each other's legs off as competitors but um, it's not uncommon to see teammates you know pat each other or different team members pat each other on the back and say how are you and check in how's your family doing you know those conversations happen too and that's uh, that's part of that sisterhood. So it's kind of awesome. Gotcha. And you know, and one of the things we love about the sport of cycling, the team sport, is the the complexity of it and the strategy and tactics. Can you talk just briefly about how you know how does that go down? Do, when teams, some teams work together or, you know, sometimes yeah. they don't, uh, does that, is that decided, you know, on the fly yeah. or beforehand? How's Especially that if you're training in different locations. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great question. I, um, you know, I talk about this a little bit in the film Half the Road. I like to use this example to break it down. I use um, the alphabet metaphor. And um, let's say that there are teams A, B, C, D, E, F that are out there. And the way that it works, if you're in a one-day race and there's just one one result and there's a podium at the end, you know, A, B, C, D, and F are all out there trying to get their top athlete to the line that first day. And, you know, everyone's working to get a member of A, B, C, D, you know, E, and F all out into a front peloton so that they equal have, equally have representation in that final sprint. And that's kind of how it works for a one-day race. But for a stage race, you know, where your leaders accumulate points day after day, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. But the way that you can think about it is that every team, A, B, C, D, E, F, they all have a leader. And so the idea is to get each of those letters, one of those letters up the road into a peloton. But that doesn't always work as easily as all of those riders are in a breakaway. So for example, if um, A, B, and C each have a rider riding up the road, then teams D, E, and F are going to work together so that they can chase back A, B, and C, if that makes sense. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, no, it definitely does. It's fascinating. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more question about sort of the the training and the the actual sport of cycling. And then we're going to ask you a little bit about all the um, initiatives that you started and, and have been pushing through. But you were, talk, you were talking about, you know, the end of a, say, the end of a stage race or the one of the days, you know, everybody's shredded, especially the domestiques are just like, oh, beat. <laughs> How do you recover that evening and and get primed to be back on the bike first thing the next morning? What's what's the what's the gold for the gold standard for getting yeah. your feet up and getting cool. to it? Well, you just nailed it. I mean, getting, this, getting our feet up was always the main goal. And of course, refueling and resting, you know, are the biggest components. So uh, athletes take it very seriously, knowing that they've got to race the next day. As soon as they're done with that first stage, they've got to get calories in and then they've got to get off their feet. And then there has to be um, some form of uh, physical therapy, which is usually in the form of a, of a massage to flush out the legs a little bit. 
it, but, and, and reps, you know, mm-hmm. the one thing that all of the athletes have in common knowing that they have to race the next day is that everybody's going to be tired. You know, right. everybody just pick their own ass on day one. And so they're all kind of in, we're all in a level field <laughs> for the next day. Level of hurt. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And of course your fitness will either help or hinder that in terms of how quickly you can recover. So, um, yeah, it always definitely helps me mentally to remember that everybody else is hurting just as much as I am. I love that. I was going to say it almost becomes a mental, mental thing then when you. Oh, very much. Anything about stage racing ends up being, you know, uh, as they say, 90% mental, 10% physical. (laughs) I think it's a little bit different. You know, maybe maybe not ninety and ten, but yeah. fifty. <laughs> or as Yogi, as Yogi Berra said, you know, ninety percent mental and the other half is physical. Right. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. That's yep. totally what it is. Can't throw those you hill repeats under the bus. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So no. Well, uh, we were fortunate enough to have Chrissy Wellington uh, talk to our. Uh, virtual Velo Club, and as you did, yeah, as you did, it was and, like uh, a wham bam awesomeness, yeah, back to back amazingness, and and she mentioned you, and my our understanding is that you and Chrissy were the drivers in establishing La Course by La Tour de France, the uh, mm-hmm. the women's ride or women's tour. Uh, how did Correct. how did that uh, come to be, and you know, what are your thoughts? Are we going to have a, a women's Tour de France someday? Yeah, I love those are those are two great questions. And starting with the the Chrissy side, um, it, and it's so fun. I always love sharing the story of how our friendship really became a union and activism as well. Um, and this is you know stemming back to again when I was working with ESPN as an editor and a columnist. Um, one of the uh, assignments that I had was to interview Chrissy. This was just as she was retiring from the sport you know, and kind of paying homage to, to what she's done in the sport. I believe it was around 2011. So um, I first reached out to Chrissy as a journalist and had a great interview and article about her. Especially because you used to be a former professional triathlete. Oh, yes. Yes. Ask so her all the big questions. Way, oh, I could relate to how amazing she was on many levels, you know, because uh, it, it just... Uh, as, as a fan and an athlete, I understood mm-hmm. what she had accomplished was... Unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. Okay. I was no, I over her. both of you for a second. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. So she was, she was so great. And she just, um, after we did the, the interview, uh, we kept in touch and we ended up becoming friends. And I was working as a, um, you know, I worked many jobs to make it in pro sports where the athlete salary is very low. So, you know, I was working a as, a as a tour guide for a cycling camp that was happening in Costa Rica. And I told her that I was doing this. And she said, oh, is there room? Can I go? I and I it. said, oh, definitely. We'll make room. <laughs> and we'll make room. So that's where we finally got to meet in person. Uh, this would have been 2012. And we bonded. And, and it, so it was amazing. You know, she, she became a dear friend. And then when she found out, I was really passionate about making change happen in cycling. And this is also the time that I started working on the documentary film, Half the Road, about women in, in pro cycling. Which um, for anybody and, listening, if you haven't already seen, go see it. It is really oh, fascinating and eye-opening and 
so interesting. Thank you. Thank you. I so appreciate that. It is out there. Um, it's on, gosh, iTunes, Amazon, and yep. Vimeo is best for international listeners. That's awesome. an easy one to access. So thank you. Thank you for the plug. Oh, and you'll also see Chrissy heartfelt. in this. <laughs> well, Chrissy again stepped up to the plate when we were filming, and I, I told her, I'm making this film on women's cycling, and she said, could I be part of it? I said, I would be honored if you would be part of it. So we filmed her for half the road, actually in Costa Rica while we were on, on the bike tour and you know, her accomplishments, she even had the fastest bike split and the fastest marathon split many times over in the sport. So, you know, it fit in so well. And during the making of half the road is when I also connected with the, the, let's call them the Chrissy Wellingtons of cycling, you know, so for mm-hmm. us, that's Marianne Ost and Emma Pooley were gold and silver medalists in the Olympics and multiple world champions each time, you know, over. And so when I started talking to Marianne and, and Emma about, do you, do you want to race the Tour de France? And all of the women in the film that I interviewed all said emphatically, yes, yes, it's crazy that we don't have access. Mm-hmm. So that's when I got the idea that we could stand together. And even though I was not an Olympian and I was not a world champion and my athletic palmars paled, you know, in comparison to theirs, what I did have was um, organizational tactics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I had a personal drive. And I also truly believe that we, the common people who might not be famous or wealthy or Olympians or politicians, you know, that we also have the power to create change. And when we you're the hub together, of the wheel, you're the hub, yeah. you're, you're bringing it all together yeah. and everybody's, you know, spreading out from there and taking it out to the rest of the world. That's, that's got, it's got to start somewhere. And you were that. Exactly. Thank you. Yes. And that's what I like to remind people that we all have that capability. So, you know, we all need someone to, to drive the bus, you know, right. right. <laughs> I like thinking of it that way when you think of like famous people in limos. Well, someone's driving that, you know, that mm-hmm. car or that bus. So they matter just as much as whoever's in the back. Yep. So that's part of it. And that's where I really gain the confidence to say, well, what if we band together and fight for this, this change? And, you know, and at first I was talking mostly to Marianne and to Emma because I was keeping my eyes on the cycling prize, so to speak. But then Chrissy, you know, there pipes up and it was like, well, can I be part of this too? And I said, oh my gosh, yes, of course, please. Your weight of influence would be amazing. And it also turned out, I talk about this too in the book, that one of the heads of um, ASO, which is the parent company of Tour de France, happened to be a triathlete. So that guy knew who Chrissy was. He understood her accomplishments. He was starstruck by her. So it goes to show you that, yes, you know, build a team out as, as big as you can to incorporate all the, you know, the awesomeness that's out there. And Chrissy was a huge factor of making this come together. So to give you the short story, we were all, the four of us were part of the, you know, decided to make this group La Tour Entier, which means the whole tour mm-hmm. and fight for women's inclusion at the Tour de France. And we were the ones that launched the petition, which got, you know, international recognition back in 2013. And then behind the scenes, all of 2013 and 2014, we worked with ASO to create La Course Tour de France. So Chrissy was hugely influential in in that journey. The beautiful thing about Chrissy, I mean, obviously there's so many 
beautiful things. Um, but similar to yeah. you, she's got a, a, she seems to me to have a very broad view and she's got such a strong mind as well. Like it's, you know, the, the athletic part and, and having an athletic gift is one piece, but at some point we're all going re- to retire from the sport. And then, and then what do we do to make it a better sport or what do we do to improve what's in front of us? And she has such a great mind yeah. as well as such a great physical prowess, similar to you, these leadership skills that you know can make stuff happen. And, and I, I applaud that so much. It's not just relying on, Hey man, I got this title and this title. I so much more than that. Oh, it was amazing to us that she was stepping up to the plate having just retired from the sport, but had that drive to want to make change happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book related to Christy is the fact that, you know, we we all have a good laugh that there were four of us. And then we brought in three more auxiliary members to help us with Latour Antier. But so now we're talking about um, seven to eight highly competitive driven women Imagine, you know, it, when you when you look at that, it's like, oh, my gosh, how is this going to work with with seven or eight type A personalities mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. coming to the table, you know, fighting for change? We all want the same thing, but we're going to have different ideas and different tactics and different opinions. And I, I talked about how in the book um, that, yeah, sometimes that happens. There were times where Christy and I really disagreed on whether we wanted to go this route or that route mm-hmm. and how important and healthy it is to disagree mm-hmm. that, you know, because we all have the same goal in mind and we were all shoot for the same thing. So how do we navigate that when um, sometimes our best friends and the people that we're working with, they want a, and we want B and which, which, how do we compromise and negotiate? And so um, that's a really important part of like, okay, a lot of different mindsets, a lot of passion. How do we come together? And we did, you know, we, we did. And I think that's so healthy, especially in today's modern day and age, where too often if we disagree with someone, we will cast them aside rather than work together or create yeah. a common ground. Canceled. You're just canceled <laughs> these days. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I'm hoping that that's one of the, the really silent but but very strong underlying messages of the book is saying we don't always have to agree. We don't always have to have the same um, tactic. But as long as we're in this together and we stick through it, and we work it out in the end, then guess what? A, we can re- achieve our results. And B, we can remain awesome friends. Right, so, right. Great. You know, well, let me ask you on that real quick. Did you was it easy for you to develop your voice and the strength to get up and ask for these changes, especially in such a male dominated sport? Difficult for you at first? Did you have to find your stride or was it such a passion that, you know, you took to it quite easily? And then from there, is there any advice you'd have for other budding activists or, or, you know, younger girls that are trying to get their voice heard in whatever capacity it is? But but to feel confident and yeah. speaking up. Those are such great questions. And I, I'll start by saying that. Asking for yeah, a friend. I, <laughs> <laughs> I would say that first, yes, absolutely. It was, it was hard to find, find it. Okay. It wasn't hard to find a voice necessarily because I, you know, we all knew like, yeah, of course it's the right thing to include women equally right. and treat women. Equally. Of course. So that part of the voice was, was built in. Like, that wasn't hard to find. But we knew that we were going up against tradition and we were going up against, let me say, antiquated men because we have we had a lot of progressive men in our corner, mm-hmm. you know, which showed in terms of those who signed the petition, those who backed half the road. So 
I never like to use the blanket term of like, oh, we were up against men. Right. I like to good, we were up good distinction. against some dinosaurs. <laughs> Very <laughs> you good know? distinction. Yeah, yeah. Men were a huge part of why we succeeded. But oh boy, the the dino boys, as I like to call them. <laughs> I like that. And the traditionalist men, absolutely, we were up against them for sure. And I do believe that anybody who's going to fight for change when it comes to equal opportunity, especially for gender, you're going to be up against dino boys. You're going to be up against traditionalists. So remember that, yes, you've got a battle there, but also remember that the progressive guys and the progressive women are on our side, Mm -hmm. right? And we should also pause to remember that not all women are going to be our allies when we fight for change, because there are just as many dino women, unfortunately, as there are men. Very good Um, point. Yeah. In fact, there were two cases and, you know, I'll keep this short. Otherwise, it will be a three hour podcast. Which would be so awesome, too. There were were definitely women um, that held me back, that stood in my path because they didn't appreciate or understand that we were fighting for our whole gender to move forward. Mm. And I often ran into a roadblock where women might have thought that I was trying to do this for myself like I was seeking the spotlight or as if or if I were trying to Mm -hmm. be the only woman to ride in the Tour de France you know really antiquated ideas they may not might not truly understood um there were some who thought that if it's making this movie half the road that it must be all about me and they didn't understand like no no I'm making a film about women in pro cycling I play a small role but no way is this film about me so you know sometimes if if you're going to step into groundbreaking territory, you're going to find a lot of people who don't understand your mission, especially if it's a mission that takes a lot of time to build and they might not see the end result, you know, for a few years. So that, so, but it's empowering to know that, okay, there are people like that out there, but we can get around them by aligning with the right people who are willing to take a chance to see our mission and to see where we want to be and where we want to grow. So um, that's, you know, yeah, there was a lot of struggle. And I do talk about that in the book. But there was also a lot of reward, you know, that you got to stick through it. And when you are absolutely, you know, standing up and fighting for what you believe in, the struggle is worth the journey. But there will be points of struggle and just embrace that and surround yourself with the right people. And for those in in terms of um, you, you mentioned what are some some steps in terms of, you know, stepping into that role of activism and advocacy. And I do have a section in the back of Stand, the book, which we'll talk about next. um, (laughs) I I will say that there is there's a manual in the back of this book for those who are willing to get on the bus and drive change. I, I list. And the reason I have this at the end of the book is because it makes more sense after reading the journey, (laughs) you know? Um, But there are a lot of tactics that mostly come from what I learned along the way, things that I had to too often learn the hard way, you know, in terms of what it to really stand up and fight for change. And I'm going to give you two of the really, the, the, the quick details. One is, to build a team. And when I say a team, whether it's two people, whether it's 10 people, however big it's going to be, I really suggest in building a small core of, um, you know, two to four people who share your mission and who are willing to work with you because it's the collective voice that gets things done, not the individual voice. I love so that. Build, 
Yeah, but also be careful, too, not to build a team that's so big that all of a sudden you don't have a leader. You know, it's, it's uh, so I, I do like to suggest that somewhere in that, you know, two, three, four, maybe five people, that's a really, really good tight number to start with. So, yeah, build a team. That's a huge one. And what's another another second one? Oh, well, I touched on this already, but to always remember that your voice matters just as much as anybody else who might be famous or wealthy or a politician, you know, people who we too often equate with change making, mm-hmm. you know, know that your voice is just as powerful as theirs and don't let anybody tell you different. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Now, yeah, you touched on this. So Stand, a memoir on activism, activism and a manual for progress coming out in February. Let's talk a little bit more about that. What's uh, in addition to having sort of the instruction manual at the end, what's the premise of the book? Yeah. Uh, so uh, Stand is in a nutshell, it's about what really happens when we stand up and fight on the front lines of change. And the journey of activism that unfolds. And again, it's really about how we are all capable of creating change. So that's the the real takeaway that I want people to have is that, look, some 30 year old woman who was, you know, a bike racer in Arizona, if she has the ability to create change at the Tour de France in Paris, then we're all capable of making something happen. So, I really want people to, to know that this book is um, it's about uh, you know paving paving the way for change. We're all able to do it, but I also will say this: the book for me, I knew I had to write it in a memoir. I call it part memoir, part manual, because the memoir part is really important to the journey. Because I feel that it's important people know that when you do stand up and fight for change, a lot can happen in your personal life and your public life, your private life, all of it together. Mm-hmm. And for me, it didn't ring true to write a book about fighting for change unless I also talked about how those elements of change affected my personal world. Always. I think it's important mm-hmm. right, to bring the vulnerability to the table and be like, look, this is not going to be an easy journey. Hopefully yours will be easier than mine. But in case it's not, watch for these red flags. You know, <laughs> well, I think that's such an important lesson, too, is, you know, we think about these noble crusades and it's going to be this, you know, we're all going to go marching together with our flag raised. And it's so often uh, do we have the bumps in the roads and and what we hear about that in history. But when it comes to just, you know, it's actually you doing it, um, I, you know, it's, it's a different matter. And it's it's I think as athletes, we're, you know, we're taught to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, yeah. And that's such a, I think that's such a valuable lesson when you're trying to make change happen and when you're trying to um, get a movement going is you're going to be uncomfortable a lot of the time because it's hard, but, but so, uh, but so important. And so I appreciate you saying, you know, prepare yourself, you know, you got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. So um, that's so Oh, go ahead. So Sorry. True. It's such a comfortable journey. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but it's worth it, you know, in the end, like, as you said. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit, I'm, I'm just conscious of the time, but I do want to talk about the Homestretch Foundation, which is speaking about putting action into words again, I mean, words into action, um, this incredible initiative that you you have put together and, and some of the other uh, wonderful people you have helping with that. But can you tell us a little bit about the foundation and how people can donate to it? Oh, thank you so much. Yes, absolutely. So Homestretch Foundation, we're a nonprofit based here in Tucson, Arizona. 
CrossFit helps female pro athletes who struggle with the gender pay gap, primarily cyclists. Well, behind the scenes, we also fight that gender pay gap. So hopefully someday it won't exist. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're residents where athletes who are at the pro level can apply to come out here and live and train for free to help alleviate a little bit of that financial burden because they are too often paid way below the poverty line. So we have just entered our fifth year. So far, we've helped 70 athletes from 17 different countries. Did you say seven? Um, seven zero? 70. This, this year will be, we'll hit 70. Seven That's zero, a beautiful yeah. thing. That is amazing. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. It feels great. It feels really good. You know, and like we talked about, you're not going to be a pro athlete your whole life. And a place like this, you can build a lot of connections for what comes next, you know, in your journey off the bike. So that's part of where we like to help our athletes out too. So yeah, it's been great. We have a website, homestretchfoundation.org. We always kindly accept donations. And I love being very transparent that where those donations go are for all the carrying costs of the of the home, of the residents, where they all are able to live and train for free. Donations help that freeness happen. <laughs> that is, yeah, that is awesome. And well, Catherine, Kevin mentioned that uh, we're going to be respectful of your time, and we've already taken up a good bit of it. But let's let's wrap up okay. uh, back to stand. Yeah. Are we correct in saying that it's coming out soon? And if so, how can people order? Oh, thank you. Yes. Okay. So. Uh, February 1st is a Monday, just around the corner, less than 10 days. And I know actually it's, it's one week from tomorrow, which is very exciting. Yeah. So it's, it's written, it's, it's packaged and getting printed as we speak, or it's already printed. Yeah. That's so exciting. I love you asked that. So the, um, the, the book, the short story is this. Sand has been a four year labor of love. And yes, everything is done, complete. The manuscript, you know, is, is all finished. The book is composed. It will come out as a hardcover, a paperback, and a Kindle ebook version. All three are available on Amazon and also on Barnes and Noble uh, for the hardcover. So it's going to be out there in all forms. And Beautiful. the reason that, yeah, oh my gosh, you know, unlike my first three books, which came out through traditional publishers, Sand is different. This one is coming out through an independent label that I self-created with a team, an awesome team. Um, Because when we brought this book proposal, the idea of Sand to the corporate market, all the publishers said the exact same thing. They said a book about women who stand up and, and fight for change. Yeah, that's, that's not going to sell. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. No that gonna, was a legit yeah. reaction. Yeah. I love it. No, no, your laughter feels great because that's how I felt too. I'm like, wait a minute. Um. What are you talking about? Have you peeked outside the, wi- the window of our society recently? <laughs> and sure enough, corporate publishing has changed. In this modern day, there are, um, what they're paying attention to is copycat trending. You know, what's, mm. um, what's, selling well right now on the bestsellers list. Let's just keep spurring, um, you know, copycat versions of that. And because there are not a lot of books out there about women who stand up and fight for change, what they're doing is they're looking at, at looking at that like it's an unmarketable branch rather than actually saying, oh, wait, this could be marketable. Let's invest. I think they need to read your book. 
we can forge a new way. We don't have to follow the old formula. Yeah. So the reason it took so long is that with traditional publishing, you'll get a book advance. So you can sit down and write your book. And that is technically your job. You know, Uh, that's how you live and survive and pay the bills. And because I didn't get a book advance offer on this, I then had to work my other jobs, Homestead being one, freelance being another, mm-hmm. activism being third. I had to work those jobs and then write around the time that I had left each day. That's why it took three years. There was also a bike crash and a brain injury sprinkled yes. in there. There's some have recovery. To have a part two of this podcast. <laughs> oh, that's sure. yeah. Separate one too. Spoiler alert: I survived. But, <laughs> You're um, still here. <laughs> You're calling in from the beyond. Yes, much to the chagrin of ASO and UCI, I am still here. (laughs) (laughs) And thank goodness for that. Thank you. Thank you, Debbie. But that's why it took so long and um, why for me, February 1st is a really big day because this past year compiling the book, you know, believe it or not, unfortunately, much to my chagrin, elves don't magically make these books appear like it turns out that we humans have to you know figure out how to do it and that took a lot of work from hiring a team of editors copy editors technical gurus for the layout one of whom is a triathlete i have to tell i have to drop his name here thorsten rad who is um german and he runs the tri rating site that does all of the data and analysis right right he's he's Amazing. He's awesome. And he signed on to help me with the technical, technical aspects of, Amazing. um, yeah, compiling the book into book form. So I, I feel like a lot of time, good people, you know, get draw in other good people. So it makes sense that you've, you've found these others uh, to help the mission. Uh, it, that's how it's been. That's this team is amazing. And you know, I'm, this book is happening because of them. It would have taken another five years to figure out how to do all of those different components on my own. And it also would have been really bad if I tried to do any of those <laughs> things that was not at all proficient in. So, um, amazing people made it happen. And so February 1st, it's funny. It's a huge day for me because the book is out. Yes. But what's funny is nothing really happens that day other than the book will ship. You're going to walk <laughs> so, around that entire day with a giant smile on your face, I hope. Oh, And exactly. people will be like, what is she I, smiling about? What is this woman smiling about? Exactly. And, and I'll be like, the book is out there. Meanwhile, no one's really going to read it on February 1st. It's, it's a 400 page book. And it takes a lot of time. <laughs> that is my jam, a hundred percent. Well, listen, I, I'm gonna. Uh, I, as we said at the beginning, you are no underachiever, and you are a jack of all trades. Thank you for doing the hard work, and you know, taking the time to forge forward and finding out all the obstacles so the rest of us can have a little bit of an easier time trying to, you know, go forward with what we want to do. And, and just thank you for being such a leader and such a tough cookie and such a beautiful shining light. Oh, heavy and red. Thank you. Because I have to tell you, it's, it's people like you and companies like you with course courts and what you do, not just in terms of the, the company, but what you stand for and the fact that you have podcasts and you have groups that are helping people thrive in this sport and that you're giving me a platform to use my voice. I can't thank you enough. You are a huge part of why something like 
change happens. And you are huge. You're part of the, the wheel. You are a cog that moves everything forward. So thank you for what you're doing. Uh, thank you so much. That means the world to me. All right. Thank oh, Catherine. Cool. Thank you so much. And we'll February look for the book. 1st, February 1st, everybody. February 1. Marked on the calendar. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Now it's time for your coaching tip from Jess Smith with Hardcore Coaching. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me back on the podcast. This is Jess Smith, professional triathlete and coach for Hardcore Coaching. And today I want to talk about training in the era of uncertainty. Remember the good old days when we actually had in-person racing? Um, it was easy to get motivated when we knew something was on the calendar and definitely going to happen. Uh, we're at least starting to see the end at the light of the COVID tunnel. So I think we can be optimistic that races will return, um, but we don't know which ones yet. Uh, if you're struggling to get excited about a race because you aren't sure if it will happen or not, you're not alone. Um, but maybe it's time to create some challenges or races that you can be excited about and that you know will happen. So this can be as simple as setting specific goals for the swim, bike, and run. Um, maybe you want to swim your best thousand yard yard time in the pool, or maybe you want to increase your FTP by 10 or 15 watts, or maybe you want to try to run a fast five or 10 K. Um, then you can tailor your training, not to maybe an event down the road that may or may not happen, but to one of these specific goals. Once you meet the goal, you set a new one. The goal should be designed to help you, um, get stronger and faster and be ready for your next real event if it happens. Um, but they can keep you motivated along the way. If you're set on really focusing on that event, um, but you're still not sure if the race is going to go on, then set up a virtual option for the exact same day, the exact same distance in case your actual race is canceled or postponed. Um, say if you're planning to race your first 70.3 in Des Moines on June 21st, figure out how to do a local 70.3 on that same day um, in case the race doesn't happen. Chart your course, make it try to make it as close to the actual race as possible. Maybe recruit some friends to join you just in case. Um, train, you know, then you can train for the 70.3. You can have, you can write a race plan, get your bike tuned, do everything that you would do, um, leading into a real race. And then, you know, you just do the race on your own in your hometown, um, on your own course with your friends, um, on that same day so that, you know, you, you get to race, you get that celebration, you have something to train for. So even if your real event doesn't happen, you've got your backup plan and that's going to really help you stay motivated to keep training and then if the race goes on you're ready um if that's all too much if you just can't wrap your head around these short-term goals and you're like i will not be excited about a virtual event um then that's okay focus on staying active swimming and biking and running or whatever sport you're interested in in a way that brings you the most enjoyment possible if you don't like training hard because life is stressful then don't um, if you can't get excited about structure then just eliminate it for now. Training should be fun. Um, and you'll find the most success in your training if you enjoy the process. Races will come back eventually, and so will that fire to compete in them. Um, so, you know, it's really finding a way that, that you can stay excited about whatever you're doing, whether that's focusing on real structure and a real event, regardless of where we are with the COVID situation and, and in-person races, or if it's just taking a step back and continuing to enjoy the process. Um, either way, you'll find more success in the end. Um, if you want more training tips and information, be sure to check us out at hardcorecoaching.com or follow us on Instagram at hardcore 
core coach and keep us posted on those virtual events. We'd love to see how they're going. Um, happy training. And we can't wait to see you on one of those real race courses eventually. They say laughter is the best medicine. So here's core ambassador Lecti Altman with your joke of the month. What do you call a guy who never farts in public? A private tutor.